Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I am sitting down with somebody who I have wanted to interview for quite some time, and that is Dr. Simon Gebois. And he has been doing research in the area of detection dogs. And I will let him give us more information on that. But first, Dr. Gibois, thank you for coming on to Canine's Talking Sets. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. So for the listeners who may not have heard of you or may not know much about you, give us a little bit of background about you and kind of how you got into the field of research and detection dogs. Uh, well, yeah, it's a long story, but uh, I used to work with wolves. Um, I used to do the behavioral endocrinology of wolves, uh, looking at, you know, hormones and social behavior. That's how I started in, for the PhD in the 90s. Did a little bit of work with coyotes as well, with um, red foxes. So um, I was kind of into canids. And then in 2007, uh, uh, one of our units of research uh, shut down, which was the Canadian Center for Wolf Research. And at that point, I had been faculty here for about five years, six years, something like that. And I was losing my you know, I mean, one of the opportunities of research. So I had to kind of reinvent myself a little bit, uh, you know, because doing field work, um, uh, you know, like say in Yellowstone, which is one of the favorite spots or Northern Quebec, whatever is extremely expensive and not, not to mention competitive and everything. And it's not great for honor students and, you know, students that do shorter degrees, like master's degrees. Anyway, so I wanted something more local that I could do in, at least partially in lab conditions. So uh, I ended up, you know, creating this dog lab. And at first, you know, I wanted to do olfaction, but, it, you know, I had done olfaction with rats, with fish at that point. Uh, I was always interested in pheromones and scent marking in wolves as well. But, you know, I, I was, I mean, with the dogs, that was new, except for the work I had done myself just for fun. Um, you know, uh, with, with my own dogs, I love doing tracking, that kind of stuff. So I thought, Hey, let's, let's, let's put all of this together. And, um, you know, so in 2006, actually a year before the Wolf Canton closed, um, I opened dog lab here at first, we did more cognitive stuff like theory of mind things. And, but I was kind of bored. That's not really what I wanted to do. And then finally, I think it's in 2009, we started doing the wildlife conservation canine stuff. Um, it just ended up being somebody I knew at Parks Canada that said, hey, um, I hear you're working with dogs, you're interested in canine olfaction, uh, could you help us with this project? And essentially, it was to train dogs to look for uh, um, our endangered here in Nova Scotia ribbon snake, a species that is not so endangered in the U.S. yet. You have mm. the Maine and the Northeast Coast, but uh, here, yeah, they, they're not doing well. So I had no idea if this was doable or not. I mm. said, yes, <laughs> let's do that. And that was the start of that research program. And then I think it's in 2012, we started the uh, biomedical detection stuff. And at first, it was with um, diabetes in mind, mm -hmm. uh, especially 
hypoglycemia, nocturnal hypoglycemia with children. Um, but again, the idea was mostly just to see if dogs could do this. And by this, I mean um, not rely on visual cues, but literally do they smell something? And, you know, um, how can we get them to uh, do this reliably, um, work on the training and all that? Uh, and that led us to what we do now, which is, um, well, we, we still do the wildlife conservation canine stuff, although in other species, but mm -hmm. for the biomedical stuff, we've been focusing mostly on um, potential odors or volatiles associated with PTSD and anxiety attacks more specifically. Okay. Wow. So yeah, a pretty broad depth of work for sure. Um, so I kind of want to ask... So my, I have a little bit of the background in canine cognition. I'm, I'm assuming you probably know Dr. Brian Hare. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So for me, I got into canine cognition. I ended up helping him out with a project that I was on with the U.S. Navy SEAL program. And mm -hmm. now I travel around quite a bit sharing what I would call a more basic version of cognitive testing. And I'm, we're really just focusing on working dogs and memory versus inference kind of components to kind of mm -hmm. help guide the individual handler or trainer to know, okay, if your dog is scoring heavily in memory, we may want to change things more frequently. And obviously, cause it will get more resilient with a dog with strong memory. Um, to the question though, is how have you seen in the examples kind of like I've given inference versus memory in detection how have you used or do you use cognition aspects in evaluating or in the training of the dog? So, for example, do you guys do any type of cognitive evaluation before you begin training to kind of help steer the ship, so to speak? <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioning this because actually right now we, we are answering uh, questions from uh, reviewers about one of our studies we're uh, we're about to publish, and it, it's it's actually about this memory thing, including when you do the work we're doing. Um, how are we sure that they're not memorizing some of the stimuli that we tend to use or reuse? Um, this whole concept of working memory in animals, which is fascinating. Um, so the short answer to your question not explicitly and directly looking to some of the cognitive stuff, but I was massively myself influenced by uh, animal cognition. In fact, my very first year of PhD, before I started working with wolves, uh, one of my supervisors was, um, uh, for one of my side projects, was Werner Honig. And Werner Honig was basically an old-school operant conditioning guy, but he's kind of the one here in North America that started um the um the to introduce some cognitive terms in um in animal learning uh so for instance uh, the concept of working memory that's very important in in the human animal cognition is actually one of the early ones to introduce that in the field of um, animal learning and cognition so this idea that when we do tasks um, we're not talking about long-term memory here. We're talking about short-term memory, but that we're, you know, memorizing, oh, what, what did I just do, you know, and, and that inform what I may do next, for instance. So this issue of, in multiple presentation of stimuli, is it possible that they're actually memorizing those instances 
in which case that can be problematic, right? Because mm -hmm. in many tasks that uh, that we uh, we do, at least in lab conditions, it's not the memory of the instance we want. It's more like your ability to generalize not too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. It's that right balance between generalization and discrimination. But are you identifying a stimulus for its properties, not the stimulus itself, that specific instance? Um, and I'll, I have to say here, this is attached to one of our specific problems here in Halifax. Halifax is a relatively small city. And recruiting donors for some of those biomedical orders has been really hard. So um, sometimes we're in situations where we have to reuse, say, samples that were used for training into tests later. And then the reviewers will say, well, are you sure they're not remembering exactly? The... And that's a fair point, right? Although yeah. we have little, uh, little ways to go around this. Anyway, I am one of those that thinks that, yeah, cognitive processes are very important when we look at, you know, what, we, um, what we're doing in, uh, in animal learning and canine learning specifically. I'm a big fan of some of the people that brought those perspectives, even to classical mm -hmm. conditioning, for instance, like Macintosh and, and many others. Um, you know, the concept of attention as well in learning, that's very important. Uh, you asked if I was assessing for this. Not directly. What I assess the most is actually motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, because my, uh, I think, I mean, yeah, motivation is something to me is important. You know, if you look at people that have worked in uh, canine ergonomics, something of Helton, for instance, you know, they, they often talk about learning and cognitive processes like attention. And they're right. Attention is important. But I find that interesting that with working dogs, that's the focus when actually I do believe that you won't have attention, you won't have memory if you're not a motivation, right? So for me, it's the the motivational profile of the dogs that matters the most. So one of the first thing we'll do here, for instance, is figure out what motivates them. Is it food? Is it play? Is it, is it just their, their social interaction with the humans? Um, it has entered also into the whole thing about breed choice that we made in this lab, which actually initially was not a choice. Uh, but anyway, the whole border quality question versus other breeds and all that. So uh, that fascinates me, that dimension of it, the motivational dimension. Yeah, it's the... And it's it's one of the things that I kind of cover when I do the cognition classes with students is obviously higher motivation also in many cases reduces flexibility. So mm -hmm. the dogs that are highly motivated for the thing sometimes get this will lead us down into that goal tracking sign tracking conversation, I'm sure. Um, but they get so motivated for the thing that their ability to try something different so the dogs that have higher inference uh sometimes become stuck um the dogs with high memory this is now i'm speaking just from my perspective is kind of like you said they get really good about a sample so they know my kit my training aids how i store them how i 
present them to them really, really well. And then when they actually get to a different kit, somebody else's material, then they tend to struggle at first. And the dogs that we've tested ahead of time with higher memory are the ones that struggle the most when you make that initial change. But that is also, in our opinion, in my experience, I should say, uh, reflective to the amount of repetitions to that specific kit and the motivation reinforcement. So if they're highly motivated, high memory, when we institute a change, same chemical just had been stored differently or maybe mixed with other things, um, they become, it takes more repetitions to them to go, okay, I now accept this other version. I guess in my question here is, how have you seen some of those things or have you seen some of those things from your perspective in the work that you do? Yeah. So here I'm going to bring it back to, to, to motivation in a sense, but you're right. There's no doubt that this affects, you know, cognitive processes. I would probably agree with Helfman here that the very first process that it will affect is motivation. Sorry, is uh, attention, I meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then we get to, to a very, very close concept, which is that working memory concept I was mentioning earlier, right? Because those two will overlap quite a bit conceptually uh, and they work together and everything. Um, for me, uh, you know, and, and now I'm going to put my neuroscientist uh, hat on. This has a lot to do with, with dopamine, actually. And in one of the book chapters we wrote um, 10 years ago now, um, in the Horowitz book, we pointed out that um, that's where we find individual and most likely breed differences as well in some of these things that later will bring us to sign tracking, actually. Um, and it's, it's what are they paying attention to it? Uh, what, yeah, what, what are they, sorry. What are they pay, paying attention to? Indeed, what motivates them? Is that getting in the way? Because it does. Um, you know, when we make references, and I'm very careful using these uh, labels with dogs, but mm-hmm. going back to Border Collies, the OCD-like behavior, the ADHD-like behavior, right? If, if you actually look at the neuroscience of this, it's all the same subcortical structures that are involved, tapping also right into the dopaminergic system. So what's interesting here is I think we, we define a type in a sense, it's relevant. Um, I mean, now some people go nuts on the dopamine stuff and they see it everywhere and they claim they manipulate it and handle it and everything. I, I think we have to be a little bit careful about what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that dopamine is, I mean, without a doubt, is the most important neurotransmitter and learning as well, right? So all these things come together into one chemical, not again to make this, to oversimplify things. I I know there's a lot of other factors, but it seems to me that it's one that often comes up. (laughs) You can't get rid of it, right? And it goes back to the Aarons and Shoemaker paper of 1992, showing that there are breed differences between dopamine, dopamine activity or, you know, um, and, you know, obviously, there's some breeds you find there that you would indeed expect that you can act, actually identify in terms of probably cognitive style in a sense, certainly motivation, behavior patterns as well. So, more colleagues, 
uh, Malinois, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Russells. Uh, and, and I'm not saying they're all equal. They're all their sure. different kind mm-hmm. of thing. But there's there's this underlying, you know, um, energy. <laughs> chaos sometimes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and what's interesting with those breeds is that if, if you can channel that they're fantastic if you can't it's a nightmare right yeah um and you know what i've liked about border collies initially is what i call their work ethics they're persistent and what's very important for the kind of work i do they're consistent so persistent and consistent and these are very as you know with working dogs very important qualities um and by by consistent i mean by this we don't want especially in the biomedical work a dog that one day is at 100 percent, but the next day is at 70 percent accuracy that that doesn't work i'd rather a dog that's at 85 90 95 percent but every day right when they work i know roughly where they're at uh, there's no, there are no surprises. Like, where are you today? Right? Uh, are you feeling good? I mean, it's not the end of the world in some of the field work I do, but with the biomedical stuff, it's and especially if you think about the idea of a dog that does this as a job, um, being an alert dog, you don't you want you want consistency over uh, maniacal 100 uh, percent performance. Yeah, the so that, yeah. no, it makes sense, and you brought in something that that is common in the detection world back to that motivation aspect that you brought up and as you know detection in the i was called the professional the working dog world for many 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 years and still to this day i would say the number one preferred choice by most trainers is a pairing method so taking obviously the high motivation item and pairing it with the odor and then their goal is to remove the reinforcer and just focus on the odor I had done that myself for years, and it wasn't until I came in contact with Dr. Lucia Lazarowski and Nathan Hall when they both said, why aren't you using delayed conditioning? Let's present the stimulus first, and while they're acknowledging the stimulus, then bring the reinforcer in. And when we did this, I had much better results. So I've spent the last few years sharing this information with a lot of different trainers, um, but the tradition, the institutionalized learning from those programs has always kept that focus on pairing was really important. And I don't disagree, maybe with some lower motivated dogs, pairing can help with, like we talked about the motivational aspect. So this goes into my sporting detection dogs now with the growth of nose work and scent work with the AKC and things like that. You're getting dogs from all different types of breeds, crossbreeds and so forth, different motivational levels and people just generally wanting to get out and do something fun with their dogs. So as I go out there um, and share this, but the biggest hurdle is when you go to the working dog professional side of things, like you said, they've selected dogs with high motivation and then they take that thing that's worth really, really high value and then pair it with the odor. And then I'm constantly causing that overshadowing effect of that reward item over the odor and always by accident, in a sense, or by default, devaluing the odor to the motivator. Can you speak a little bit on that and maybe some pros and cons like I'm discussing with, with the risk of pairing a high a really high motivating reward item, reinforcement item with odor at the same time, 
And what are the considerations based on what we just talked about with motivators? Yeah, that's interesting because you're you're tapping in a lot of the models. I, I teach a lot to my students in both classical and operating conditioning here. But I don't necessarily go in the nitty-gritty aspect of this. Okay, let me explain. Um, so here's the thing. The way we handle our dogs in the biomedical stuff that is heavily lab-based and the conservation stuff that is field-based, but although we'll often start in the lab, um, is very different. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it, it's often the students that have worked with me on both aspects of the, the, those two uh, research programs don't understand why we do things so differently. So let me see if I can uh, explore this with you here intelligently. Uh, let me think about this. So, mm-hmm. so it's just, it's interesting this idea that you introduce the scent first and then and then later is what you you said you you introduced a reinforcer. So what we do is let's just say it's a container and for us it's a uh, plastic box so it's easy to clean right and in there mm-hmm. is the stainless steel can with the odor in it. So when the dog goes up to that box, sniffs, sniffs that box, we use a condition reinforcer. So we mark, and then the food is delivered or toy can be delivered. Most times right. in this okay. stage, it's food. So we can get the repetitions out of it. And then whatever the last repetition that we're going to do, whether it's repetition number five, three, et cetera, we then reward with the toy item and then we're done. As that <laughs> progresses and the dog gets consistent, um, we can just start building duration, go to the, you find, you know, it goes in discrimination at this point. So step two for us is discrimination. They lock in on it. We start working on longer and longer duration of whatever the trained behavior is. And in most cases for, for what I teach, it's going to be either a freeze and in some cases a sit position based on um, maybe what the client wanted or what the, the agency mm-hmm. wanted. So yeah. that's the, pro- that's the process. So it just, for that split second, let's just say the dog has to be in the odor first while they're in the odor, then the reinforcement comes in. Um, so that's how, to answer your question, that's yeah. how we go about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, actually, uh, I, I see what you're saying now. It's very, in a sense, very similar to what we do. But but here we have part of our screening process. Um, we we do a lot of scent games with the dogs at, at, at first. have nothing to do with these, the, what they'll do what they'll do later. Same here. We do before that even starts. We do search games and things like that. So I, yeah. I preface this with what we call step zero is the search games, the motivation, because it may not be for what's later on the target odor. It's the development and looking at those uh, skills that we will want to incorporate when odor is introduced. So there you go. Yeah, uh, and and I think that's really neat to do. Um, because it allows you to see what's also the, especially for field dogs, what the search pattern is going to be. Is that innate for them? Is, is it more like the hunting dog style or this this sometimes overly systematic border quality kind of thing they do? Uh, I mean, you, you get such a such um, large amount of information from this. You know, it, it's it's crazy. Uh, that's where we test also what motivates them. I agree with something that you said too, where uh, you have to be a little bit careful with play as a reinforcer. I think um, for us, it's in, it, indeed it's not after trials, but at the end of a session that we may say, "Okay, good job, right?" And now we play with them again. That's not all dogs, also that will appreciate that. To be to be honest, 
Um, we use the clicker. Do you are are you a clicker user? Yeah. So for us, it can be clicker, word, or whistle. Um, so to give you a little backstory on the clicker part of it was that was what I first used, and then within the Navy SEAL program, we abandoned the clicker simply because of the potential mechanical malfunction or loss yeah. of the device on a mission. So we needed to have something that was with them all the time, which would be a word. And behind that, we also had the use of a silent whistle, which was for operational purposes. If you were further away from the dog and you didn't want to make any noise yourself, you could use the silent whistle as your um, condition reinforcer and the dog knew. And the, the other bonus of the whistle was initially when the dog was sent out to go search, the handler and other operators may have moved into other positions while the dog was searching. So when the dog found something, or if it did find something, it was indicating the handler could use the silent whistle, and the dog would hear, oh, you're over there, and then uh, you know, return a handler for reward, or however we're using it at that moment. Um, but that was our option. So yes, I am, I, I would say, proponent of all of these, and I understand, and this is, I have to share a lot of times, is there's pros and cons to a lot of things, and you have to mm-hmm. decide what works for you and your job as a handler. And what you and your dog, you know, some people, I'm sure you see this too. Some people are really good with a mechanical device and maybe not so good with a word or vice versa. So that, I hope that answers your question there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and I'm going to, to make a little detour here. So we may have to come back to your initial question. But so first of all, I'm not uh, one of those people that thinks that the, 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 the clicker is sacrosanct. Um, to be honest with you, we often don't use it with field dogs. I'll tell you why. It's because in the field, I don't have a hand or a clicker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just it's, uh, okay. Uh, the noise issue is actually interesting. Um, uh, if I do use something in the field and also I want the range, you know, because sometimes it can be distance. So yeah, the, the dog whistle is much better. Not to mention also that, and again, for some people that's a sim, but I'll mention it anyway. I like with the whistle also the way that you can communicate different things right by modulating the sound um i i you know we know from wolves and and coyotes um um you know they 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 have a an ability to process sound phonology music more so than we probably assume say 20 30 years ago it makes sense if you look at the work uh, by Fred Arrington, one of my colleagues here, that, uh, you know, did basically a whole career studying their vocalizations. They, they clearly are themselves able to produce a rich number of sounds, but also mm-hmm. process it. I don't know why in training, honestly, we don't take advantage of this. Right. right? Um, and this obsession with the clicker, this idea that it has to be a sound, it's always the same. It just, mm-hmm. I, I get that if you were in the lab with rats, uh, you know, where that started, sure, um, you don't want too much variability and okay, fine. But why? If you're yeah. communicating with a dog in a real world, don't you want all that richness, right? Mm-hmm. This, um, this ability to, to even communicate maybe even how great this is. Oh, this was good. Oh, this was fantastic. Oh, this is amazing. You got it, right? I, I, I do believe there's a value in that. So again, the clicker for me, it's a bit limiting. And honestly, we use it mostly in lab conditions um, with the more um, you know, experimental 
controlled kind of trials. Mm-hmm. And that is only for dogs that like it, because let's be clear, not all dogs like the clicker anyway. Sure. Um, and we, we pair the clicker. I mean, we just don't do the clicker. I mean, that's the first indication. Okay, you got it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's followed with verbal praise and, you know, obviously the, the, the treat comes right away. And so I, I think, you know, there's not, um, how can I say this? It's yeah. I, I, I'm sure some dog trainers that I know would come here and see how we do things and go, right. But uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I don't like to deal with dogs in um you know skinner box kind of way mm-hmm. when you can add so much more in terms of the feedback you give them about what they just did um uh, you know it, it's yeah and the advantage of the quicker honestly is is how quick you can deliver that condition reinforcer right mm-hmm. so if you need the precision in time and space for some behaviors it's, it's fantastic yeah. But in most cases, you don't need that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, there are studies showing they respond as well, if not better, to human voice, praise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Heading, even some studies show that they actually like the, the social contact more. Here, there's delivery issues on that one, but anyway. Uh, so, yeah, no, anyway, so where did we get there again? So, well, Sorry. I think, I no, no, totally fine, because it worked, because, so the, you brought up something that is referenced a lot of times. So in this sport of nose work, um, there's a reference that's brought in from time to time of that research of, and I'm, I'm forgetting who did it. You'll remember as soon as I say this, where they studied clicker versus word versus, Mm. um, no reward or no condition reinforcer. And they like to bring up, Oh, see, it was the same across the board, but the last paragraph of that research clearly stated that the handler's bow became the condition reinforcer as the handler was leaning to get the reinforcer from their pocket or whatever. So at the end, it was a condition reinforcer was a condition reinforcer. And on top of that, that I share with them is that research was in relation to a obedience type exercise, as opposed to a detection exercise where later the handler may or may not know what was happening right there. So the use of a condition reinforcer gives you actually better flexibility than you walking all the way in and having to step in and reward. And then, as we both know, when you by not having some type of audible condition reinforcer, the dog will then pick something from you that's predictable and reliable, which is you walking in or standing behind the dog. Go ahead. Especially sign trackers, right? I mean, that's that's the the magic of sign trackers here, and that's uh, uh, the problem as well in some cases. Right? It depends Absolutely. on what control you have. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's uh, they will find their condition reinforcers. Believe me. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's funny because we always have this this idea that we know, right? And 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 we we think we know what we control. And what the dog is perceiving, and I would say, well over half the time, we have no idea. Right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. here, we have a great story, for instance, of um, um, uh, oh my, why am I blocking on this now? Um, clever hands effect. Yeah, we have a magnificent example of a clever hands effect that we. It's a long story, so I won't tell it, but just show how they will grab any information they think is relevant. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you really 
you really don't control much of it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, all you can do is make the, the the clicker consistent, relatively salient, and hope that that's really what's working. In most cases, that's somebody that knows how to handle the clicker well. That that won't be a problem. But you're absolutely right. They pick up on all kinds of other signs. Um, absolutely. So they they find their condition reinforcers themselves and it may not be the one we think mm -hmm. that way and that's um, kind of how we got started we, we, what it was it was we were talking about i guess the the pros and cons of the different uh condition reinforcers and what to use that's when we got sidetracked a little bit um right. but i would say um if you want to expand upon it the importance of a condition reinforcer that we do control versus the this like you said this is going to get us into that sign tracking versus gold tracking part of the conversation but the use of the condition reinforcer creates that clarity versus the dog picking the something out like for example what i'm getting at is the teams of dog handlers who when the dog finds the target does whatever the trained behavior is then the next thing is the handler comes walking in to deliver a reward at source and the thought process behind that was well i'm paying the dog where the odor's at but they the dog is already as soon as you start doing the thing the dog is already disregarded the you paying them at the odor doesn't really matter anymore that's kind of where we were at and i'll let you kind of take that from there yeah yeah um it's funny as you were talking about this it, it reminded me of a case where a student um, came to get me at the office it's coming to the lab i'm having an issue with this dog and one thing I noticed, which had nothing to do with the problem they were dealing with that dog at the time. So I was sitting in the corner of the room observing. And uh, uh, one of the issues that I noticed is the dog would often get deflated in some trials. Like just it was a different, uh, a tough discrimination, and we knew it. Um, and then I said to the, the student handler, I said, stop sighing. And basically, interestingly, what she would do is when the dog would have the, the although it was double blind, so she did not know what trial, uh, you know, was right. But eventually a third person in the room would give her the information so she could deliver the, you know, would hear the click and then deliver the, uh, deliver, deliver the, the kibble. But when that didn't happen, she would go. And then the dog heard that. It's basically an unreward marker. It's exactly what they supposed condition, like or yep. condition punisher, even if you want to call it that. But sure. you could tell, you could tell, you would see the dog go like. You know. <laughs> so there was that weird dance of click, yay, and that, and the dog, you know, mm -hmm. it was like okay, um, I don't think that's what we want to do. You have motivational issues with its dog. Well, I think he's very sensitive to this. And by the way, this is also to illustrate. It's not just condition reinforcers that they pick up on. Mm -hmm. It's everything else that says, ah, crap, this was not right, right? Even if you don't say it, even if you don't do anything, if you don't, you know, uh, if you ignore. Also, this weird idea that ignoring is is, is nothing. It's Ignoring is extremely punishing. Um, but anyway, yes. So again, sorry, I'm, I'm stuck. No, in, no, that's, uh, this is perfect. A milestone of ideas there. Oh, and, and believe me, I go through the same thing, which is I had to write stuff down. So I always remember. <laughs> um, so let's do this for the listeners and viewers. Let's define, um, give the definition of gold tracking and the definition of sign tracking as it relates to detection dogs. Okay. So, uh, no, that's interesting. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, let me let me give you uh, 
an example I give to my students about the difference between the two. Right? Two okay. dogs at home right now. One is a gold tracker. The other one is a silver tracker. So by the way, this is based on the literature with rats that shows very well that you can divide rats in two or actually arguably three categories. The, the ones in the middle, a lot of uh, individuals, including humans, are right in the middle. But the theory is that, you know, as a certain number of them are going to be mostly sign trackers and others uh, mostly gold trackers. So the way I know about IV uh, being a sign tracker and uh, Tash being a gold tracker is the following. When it's supper time at home, dogs know that this is roughly when they're going to get fed. And I don't have clear routine, depends if the kids are around, what's going on, etc. But they know this, this is getting hot now. Okay, fine, we'll get uh, fed soon. And obviously, they engage in behaviors that are anticipatory behaviors. That's a huge part of learning. And... Uh, what Ivy will do, and I know that she's really trying to get my attention here, is that I will uh, feel at some point her um, wet nose on my hand, wherever I am in the kitchen. Tash, she's sitting right at the bowl waiting for it to come, right? So this is basically a rough kind of definition of what a sign tracker is. A sign tracker will just pay attention to any cue condition stimulus that basically uh, announces the U.S. order reinforcer. He, depending if you want to be Pavlovian or Skinnerian here in the, you know, talking about classical operating conditioning, as opposed to the goal tracker um, that will focus a lot more on the, the where the source of uh, the food is delivered, right? So this comes from studies by colleagues of mine. Um, it's funny because I was revising one of those papers recently from one of my lectures uh, that were looking at the behavior of rats in Skinner boxes and what it is that they pay attention to. Ken Berry just done uh, really nice work on this as well uh, in the context of uh, addiction. Uh, and it's fascinating, right? Some some rats, they will, uh, they will start licking and, and chewing the light, you know, the, that condition stimulus. Others are... Uh, at the lever and they, they, they chew on the lever uh, as much as they can. Others, it's right ahead in the magazine and doing the same thing. So basically, they all learn themselves what they think predicts the the, the reinforcer or, or the U.S., just to be very clear, not to distinguish too much between Pavlovian and operant stuff. And um, you actually have strangely little control over this. Uh, and it's interesting that this translates into uh, training dogs, obviously. I think that this link I was creating between what I've called in the past dopamine dogs and, no, apparently I did something that excited the system there. Apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah, dopamine dogs and, uh, uh, and sign tracking is very strong, and that's been demonstrated as well. So, you know, possibly... Acknowledging individual differences, obviously, breeds like Manin was and Border Collies are probably good sign trackers overall, maybe more so than other breeds. Uh, again, I would be careful. There's clearly exceptions here. And you can totally take advantage of this, by the way. Um, for instance, dogs are very good at learning and acquiring condition reinforcers, um, most likely very good sign trackers. Um, and then also it brings the idea 
that context is important. And anything you do in a training context becomes potentially very, very valuable for those dogs in terms of um, what to pay attention to, basically. You know, what what is going to be a predictor of success. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, too much sign tracking is also bad, right? Uh, because too much sign tracking, some dogs, it seems that, okay, they, they will make up shit that's not there, right? Yep. They will invent yep. things that are not good predictors, but they're so attuned to anything else that could be that you need to go, no, 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 stop doing this. It's really as simple as you initially thought it was. <laughs> Just yep. stop looking at, you know, at what I do and et cetera, because that's a problem. Sign trackers are probably much more likely also uh, to uh, fall into the clever hands effects, right? Pick up cues that may or may not be uh, indicating of, you know, um, their performance. Mm-hmm. I have so much more to say about this, but I'll stop right now because I could go on for another 20 minutes on this. Anyway. And, and you're highlighting the point. So, and this is what will help people understand is dogs that are naturally high sign trackers are the ones that are really paying attention to a lot of handler signals and cues. So even though they look like they're searching, they're also very much paying attention to what the handler might be doing, the the pace of the handler, the, where their hands are at, um, things of that nature. And then the goal tracking dog is constantly looking for what predicted it in the environment. Was it the something that's around a port, like you were saying? Was it... Um, uh, a, a file like the the common thing in the police dog world is hi- hiding things in filing cabinets or gas caps or locations like this. And our dogs that are the heavy goal trackers will focus on things like that. And the ones that are heavy sign trackers have been paying attention to a lot of handler movements, motions, um, verbal confirmations, things of that nature. Which is again why the use of a condition reinforcer can help minimize some of these things once, like you said, once they picked up on, oh, okay, first I got to find the stimulus, which is the target odor. And then second, the next thing, and this is where we can kind of get into a little bit, but when they find the odor, some dogs kind of get what I call like their brain freezes. Like I've I've found the thing. Oh yeah. What am I supposed to do next? Because again, that Mm -hmm. motivation, that higher arousal some of those dogs don't think of sitting next. Like if that indication was a sit, they get highly focused. So they stay there and then the handler keeps waiting for the dog to sit. And as they wait and wait and wait for the dog to sit, who's shown it well in other areas. Now that more motivated dog starts having the emotional response. The vending machine is broken. Why am I not getting the reinforcer? So then we're seeing that, pushing, biting, scratching, whatever behavior come out of them. And then the session kind of falls apart because mm-hmm. the the handler missed an opportunity. This is where I say, hey, look, um, the dog found the odor, which is the most important part. The cosmetic piece of whether the dog was standing and freezing or sitting, I'm not too worried about, especially if this is an operational condition now, because now... I can't predict all the things that might happen in my operational world. And if my dog has already, it's excited to go do the work, it's searching, ooh, I found the thing. And then the dog doesn't go into the sit position and the handler's like, well, I'm not going to call anything until the dog sits. The dog gets frustrated. And then on top of all of that, the dog responds the way it does. The handler's not 100% sure because the dog didn't do the perfect response. 
Then because it's real world, the handler won't even reinforce. They just pull the dog off, maybe give a little bit of praise at best. And then as Dr. Nathan Hall started highlighting was training conditions predicted very fast reinforcement under conditions that were very clear. Then all of a sudden, when you went into a operational environment, the reinforcement schedules dropped to some, in some cases, zero. The handlers wouldn't reinforce because they didn't know the answer. And then the dog started looking at, oh, training looks like Christmas morning. Re, you know, doing real deployment searches isn't very fun. And the bigger issue comes into play. Oh, when I'm in this condition, I'm not going to put much effort into it because it's not very reinforcing. But if it's in this condition, these areas that we go to frequently because we know it's training, I'm going to put in today's going to be an awesome day. We're going to rock it out, as he says. And this is going to be a great session. Um, Again, layering into those sign and goal tracking dogs. Now we're just building upon, you know, issues just start, you know, um, magnifying more and more. Yeah. So I like all I have four points here I want to Good. address. Uh, first of all, you know, too much goal tracking, too, mu- too much sign tracking um, can get out of hand. And you pointed out something interesting about goal trackers is that, yeah, if they focus too much on where what they think is producing the, the reinforcer, sometimes that 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 brings a, a significant bias in search. Um, and and some dogs, it's like, yeah, no, it's not just under trees that you find those turtles. It's elsewhere as well, right? So it's, yeah. uh, it it creates all kinds of problems. And like you said, the sign trackers again, they they are paying so much attention to everything else. It, and what's constant or consistent, at least in the field, is you, right? Mm-hmm. So um, even if they don't look like uh, they're doing it, you're right. They they will monitor the handler quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, something that's interesting about the field, I found a completely different story from the lab, is that the work in itself is often totally self-reinforcing. And we've had dogs, uh, and, and this is a conversation I'm having with dog trainers sometimes where I'm thinking, wow, we, we, we are in different worlds because you don't, you can't accept this idea. But I've had dogs that I haven't literally reinforced in the field in years because they don't care they don't have the time i mean i remember zila my 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 border calling unfortunately she's not with us anymore but this would be the kind of dog where i would like i try to get her attention to you know say hey good good job or, or click or here's the kibble and she would be like no thanks i don't have the word i don't have the time for that <laughs> right yeah, yeah. there's so much that that intrinsic motivation is so strong it's just like I'm doing my job. I'm telling you where it is. You're happy. Good. Let's move on. Right. Indication. That's another one that you, it's funny the the obsession with some trainers, including in the wildlife conservation stuff to train in education and the precision of it. Full seminar, just on that. Some people will be scandalized probably to know that I often don't train indication yep. in the field work. I let the flow. And I, I know I can read my dog. I know what yes. they do. I know what it looks like. When they smell it, they slow down. They do this. And so I'll try, obviously, to be not too far behind them. Um, but I tend to see this stoppage sitting back or the, the nose down, you know, like it it doesn't always work. Um, in fact, in some dogs, again, don't even want to take the time to do it. Uh, they don't even want to stop because, again, they're not even interested in a reinforcer uh, 
whatever it is for that matter, just let's move on, let's move on, let's find others. So, um, yeah, I'm not, that's not, that's another thing where I'm quite a relativist, actually. Now, for the lab work that we do, it's essential that they do it because we use a lot of signal detection theory where we do actually actually true detection tasks. So it's not just the two AFC, three AFC, or you know, basically the lineup procedure. Mm-hmm. So it will be, say, one sample at a time. Yes or no? Is that the target or not? So that means they have two, two responses, right? They can be reinforced for a yes, if they're accurate, by doing a nose hold for five seconds, or they can be reinforced for a no, if they're accurate, by sitting back. For most dogs, that's a way of saying, no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. So for 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 that, we were very very picky on making sure they give the right indication, and uh, in the, the case of the nose hold, for the right timing. The last thing that you mentioned, uh, I think it's in relate relates to something that we we have discussed here many 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 times, is that when you train a dog for the field on a on a target order. In training, you use the training order, the target, the distractors, or the blanks, whatever, how you do it, at which point of training you are at. You you know the outcome, or if you're doing this double blind, somebody around you knows what the dog should have um, responded. But the reality of the field, and that's the tragedy of it, is that if the dog um, is unsure, And especially in my case, where we tend to reinforce, and there's actually a reason for this that I didn't explain before, but some of the, the let's say, responses or indications that we want, in some cases, will be for set marking, including urinary set marking, say, in coyotes. And so the stimulus is um, invisible to us, right? They can smell it. We can if we get on all four, but I mean, there's a delay there. The idea being this is, uh, or unless it's the winter, obviously, and you see the yellow snow, but uh, essentially the idea is this, is that there's always this fear in the field to reinforce false alarms, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, right, uh, or misses for that matter, right? Yeah. Um, and that indeed creates a problem. And this is where, you know, one easy solution to this is to make sure that during training you use intermittent or partial reinforcement. Because if you didn't and you get in the field and I'm uh, not too sure, I'm not sure I will reinforce you for that one, or maybe I will, but that's actually a possible learn, then you mess things up so quickly. You can have like full-blown extinction where your dog goes like, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't understand what's going on all of this worked perfectly well in the lab and now I'm telling you it's there and you're telling me no it's not it just you know and so you get in those awful situations again some dogs are more forgiving than others for this um but the sign trackers tend to just not be happy with this state of affair let's put it that way um, yeah yeah so and, it, and this ahead. yeah no go ahead no I was just saying so what it, it, and it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a thing that I've really made sure I myself as instructor now share more frequently and make sure the importance is understood is that I am making sure in training we are doing these things that I'm going to do in reality. 
on the deployment side of things. And what happens is training looks, and again, thanks to social media and things like that, people get, like you said earlier, focused really on these nice focused responses, whether it be a pretty sit and they're doing it on a brick wall or a set of boxes or a wheel, a carousel. And it looks really pretty. But back to the thing you pointed out was in the reality, when you're operational, there's a number of conditions that present that the dog may not be able to do that. And then when they can't do that, there's some struggle. But the importance of knowing your dog's behaviors and knowing when your dog is on odor is actually more important than the cosmetic aspect of a position it has to get in. And then because they don't get into it, then they may or may not get reinforced on top of the other operational reasons why you may or may not reinforce in an operational setting. So making sure that we do that in training. So in training, there are objectives of this. Today's session is my dog is going to find whatever it finds where we have out. When it does, I am going to give, and I want your opinion on this part specifically, is I give my condition reinforcer, but what I'm following it up with is just going to be some praise and we move on. Um, yep. Michael brought up an interesting point one time was if you gave your condition reinforcer and you gave nothing afterwards, you have to be careful of doing that too frequently because then you might devalue obviously your condition reinforcer, but two, you could almost make it punishing depending on the dog's motivation. Okay. So that, that's actually theoretically not true. And I okay. know that, uh, yeah, I know there is actually a conversation about this. And one of the arguments that is often put forward for that principle is that uh, basically uh, click treat, click treat is like a CSUS relationship, right? And Reskola and Wagner is the model that is often invoked for this uh, because that model initially, well, that model actually says that the tightness of these, uh, this CS and US uh, needs to be strong. Okay weird here because there's actually a pretty good literature on secondary reinforcers showing that actually that may not be true. There's a neuroscience perspective of this, including sign tracking, actually, that indicates kind of the opposite. Not just that, but what's completely missed about this and mystifies me, honestly, uh-huh. and if you read this book, you will see actually what, what I mean. This is my favorite second year university uh, textbook, the button book, is this. Res Carla and Wagner independently came up with new theories after the 1972 paper that everybody will throw at you when you talk about this. Wagner developed the SOP model that later became the AESOP, and Rescarla developed another one as well. Uh, so around 1982, um, and we know Rescarla quite well here because one of his colleagues and best friend um, uh, is here, uh, Vincent Lolordo. Um, so him and I actually talked about this, but here's the thing is by 1982, uh, Robert, that's Robert Rescarla, knew that the CSUS relationship actually did not have to be that tight. In fact, what the model actually interestingly says is when the CS predicts too well the US, mm-hmm. the animal stops learning. So that's very interesting. Very. But it's not just that, is that it's exactly like with reinforcement in the Skinnerian um, uh, realm is that uh, anticipation is what matters, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. producing a CS, a CS, so a click, that's not 
always followed by the U.S., mm-hmm. actually does the opposite of what people often claim. So Riscorla, by 1982, in one of his papers, um, acknowledged this. In 1988, he published a paper that a lot of people forget about, but a seminal paper on classical conditioning. It was called uh, Classical Conditioning. It m- may not be what you think it is. <laughs> and that's where he exposed the expectancy theory. And if it sounds like anticipation, you're right. That's what it is. And it's this idea that the CS is there to create that anticipation, the possibility of the reward. And in 1999, he wrote a paper on, that's the whole point, the partial reinforcement extinction effect, showing that actually, if you want to fight extinction in classical commissioning, that CS-US relationship cannot be too tight. So not a one-to-one ratio, and the, but rather the opposite. In between all of this, there was Hall and Pierce, Pierce and Hall, Kay and Pierce, that actually addressed directly this idea of, of that mismatch between the CS and the US potentially being at your advantage. So here's what I would say. Sure, in early training, during the acquisition of the link between the CS and the US, you want a one-to-one ratio. But later, if you produce just a click and it's not followed by, by the treat, the theory as revised by Rescola and Wagner independently says, it's not a big deal. In fact, in fact, it's potentially at least fighting extinction, but potentially just getting more their attention. And now we're back to the Macintosh theory. That's the one that followed Rescola and Wagner the closest. I think uh, Rescola and Wagner is 72, Macintosh is 74. And his idea was the CS is an attention grabber, right? That's why you click. what's going to happen next, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So going to the attention, because Macintosh theory is an attention theory, essentially. All right, that got me off track completely. Oh, yeah, I remember what I wanted to say. When we were talking about the FOSRM stuff, think about the stuff we do in the field, in my case, whereas, for instance, one of the projects we've been doing for a long time now, 13 years, is looking for wood turtles. There is a really interesting field situation where the dogs will signal it's there. And I mean, here's the thing. What do we conceptualize as the target here? For me, it's a turtle. But based on the training of the dog, it's the scent of the turtle. I'm telling you, there's the scent of the turtle here. And I'm there behind the dog saying, but there's no turtle, buddy. <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah. what do I do in a situation like this? I don't want to not encourage the dog that just told me, look, there was a turtle here in the last six hours. It's clear to me I can smell it. Right? It's actually data for me. We, we've, we've learned to know that this is reliable. We enter this now as a data point with GPS coordinates in, the, in, our, um, uh, in our field data. But you're right. It's not the turtle, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We want the turtle. So this is where I go back to the whistle, right? Why can't we just say, you find a turtle? <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. It would actually be like, the long whistle, let's say, or more sustained, big party is going to follow now, right? If mm-hmm. you care about it at all. Versus, um, yeah. yep, I mean, you're on the scent, but mm, where's the target, right? Let's let's track now or let's trail whatever you need to do to get to that turtle if it's still possible. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I have been having a hard time with is why don't we take advantage of this kind of graded communication with dogs, right? Um, 
because again, the clicker doesn't allow you to do this unless you double or triple click, which is not a good idea. And it just like kind of get them actually. The only person I think I know that does this is Casey Cover, right? Casey that that does the uh, hot or cold. Yeah, right? I, I love this idea that you can actually say, mm, right? She uses a sound. I think it's or something like that, right? Right. So as the dog is closer to the goal, then the I love this idea. Uh, you know, they have the capacity to understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would, you know, if, if, it, if it's well done, I mean, you need to train yourself to do this well, obviously. Um, it adds nuances that could probably give you a lot of flexibility, including that situation you mentioned where, in some cases, uh, you want to say good, but not 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 it's not good enough but it's it's i'm looking for something even more awesome yes <laughs> right and I, I i think we we lose from not taking advantage of that i don't know if you agree but i totally agree and that's something that myself michael the trainers i work we've had deep conversations about was the you know i would say the words that we use is a multiple marker system so meaning different things like you talked about. So we have the terminal bridge, which is going to just be, the, hey, like you said, this is a, you know, you hear this signal, it's a party, we're going to play, you get your your favorite thing. But just yeah. like you said, the one that says, keep going. I like what you're doing, yep. but keep going. There's, a, there's a, potentially a better answer here. And that becomes critical to, to, I totally agree with the success of, a lot of avoiding a lot of other problems so people will call it like you said fringing they're they're close but they're they're sourced the source is further out i know you you smell it but there's a better option if you keep going with this and this mm-hmm. goes heavily into what uh and i don't know if you guys refer it the same way we call inaccessibles which means like it's either deep or high so there's no uh, way yeah. to get their nose mm-hmm. right on it but they we can reinforce them and this is where i get into when i start teaching this when i start teaching inaccessibles um because like i try to get people to understand your dog doesn't see it the same way you see it so in this situation when let's say it's uh horizontal the dog can get to it but all of a sudden when it's vertical they can't get to it but when it's here when it's horizontal we want to make sure they get as close as they can but when all of a sudden it's above them and they're just not tall enough we keep expecting a same response, but there's been so much history to the dog of the only way I can get reinforcements if my nose is right next to it, but it's impossible over here. So I have to go about communicating. Here's ways to do it. We can do, keep doing that thing. Don't, my thing was don't ignore them because they keep waiting for this perfect final response, but the dog's like, well, I can't get my nose to it when it's up here. So this is where, I'll either do that that bridge, that initial keep going. I like what you're doing. Keep working to tell me it's there. And when they realize there's no way to do it, they'll probably give you that response. But in the very beginning stages, I will, a lot of times for me, when the first example of when it's high, they can't get to it, when they make any effort to go up to tell me it's there, I give them that really good signal. So for me, it would be, like I said, the, the longer whistle blast. Boom, and now we're going to play. The next time when they do it, I might give them that short one. Okay, you're on the right track. Keep 
pursuing, keep showing me it's there, and then you're going to probably get the, the the really good one. Um, because when, like you said, when it becomes so black and white, I'm only reinforcing for this particular thing. That becomes the problem because the dog is confused. I don't. I smell it. Yep. What do you want from me? Um, and this again leads into um, those who train and work in those really easy environments so long, like I said, the, whether it be the walls, the wheels and so forth, they train so much time on this. And then when they go to the real world, they, the dog doesn't have the database there of what to do when all these other conditions are present. And a lot of time I've seen trainers say, well, if I've built my foundation really good and I've done this, the dog will automatically default to that. And I've, we both know that that's not true. The environment does crazy things and the dog takes in so many more things not even us humans taking into account whether i have that sign tracker or that goal tracker or what are those things that are starting to happen so these are the things that we have to be aware of and it doesn't always fit in that pretty little picture of what the foundations look like but we also have to be extremely good about our communication and the signals that we're using so that way we have clarity the dog's not trying to constantly figure out what am i doing what is this thing what do you want from me let's change now or it doesn't quite smell exactly the same as the things you've been giving me for the past three months out here it smells different and you know and again depending on what your discipline is you know is someone trying to smuggle something past you so they've done things on purpose to mask or hide the odor Mm -hmm. um or like you said, the conservation world. Well, now there's a lot of other predators, prey items that are going to, you know, intrinsically give value to the dog to pay attention to and how to read these things. I had wrote, I had written in my notes. Um, you were talking about earlier where the dogs were internally motivated by the act of searching. Yeah, I don't want to slow down. And, and I learned this a lot when I switched and started working with pointers and, and spaniels who love hunting. Yeah, they will. If you teach them, they'll stop and show you the things there, but they don't necessarily care about vigorous play with a toy. They're ready to go search again. And a lot don't of bother me. Don't bother yeah, me with that stuff. That leave me alone. Stuff. I want to keep doing that. And it really messes with the heads of a lot of trainers when they go out and select dogs for various projects because they've been told the best dog is the one who plays very vigorously with a toy tugs a lot and all these things they will completely bypass the dog who wants to keep searching and i've had to bring attention to trainers whose job is to select dogs like you don't want to discount these dogs who really like to go hunt because that's the number one thing you really wanted anyway was a dog who was strong in hunting the thing you do have to make sure you communicate is making sure they put in the effort to tell you they found it because some dogs will be very quick, like there it is. And they move on and you have to teach some persistence about a behavior when you find it. But that's the only thing they, they got so worried about play interaction that they completely disregarded really valuable things that came natural to that dog, such as the hunting aspects. Um, And and as I'm keep going here, the other part you brought up, so let me give an example for our listeners and viewers about what we were talking about a second ago. So we're, we're now operational. My dog searches. It finds the thing. I give it the condition reinforcer. So let's say I give my whistle. 
I can then tell the dog, keep searching. I don't have to give them their high value reward item. I can say, yes, you're right. Keep going. Versus my dog searches, finds the thing. I give or say nothing and then try to drag them along to go forward. What I want to highlight specifically on the second example is do the dogs with no feedback of being correct, do they view that as kind of like, as I've heard other trainers say, a contract violation? Like, I'm right, and you've given me no feedback whatsoever. You're just trying to force me along to the next thing when I haven't even gotten acknowledged for my find here. How would you, yeah. The use of, I think that you, you should at least give something, right? Versus giving completely nothing. Should you at least, of course, give the condition reinforcer, but whether you follow it up with high value or not is more ideal than saying absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, first of all, by the way, you have another point here. Uh, the, the point of the value of the U.S. or the, uh, the, the treat is another thing you can manipulate. Anyway, that's another issue. Um, look, um, you know, the cognitive perspective on this. So, so let me take this from another perspective. The cognitive perspective doesn't see it in terms of punishers, reinforcers, and any of that. It sees it as feedback, positive and negative feedback, right? And I've tried many times with dog trainers to reframe it that way so we could actually uh, talk a little bit more about negative feedback because interestingly, without saying punishment here, um, this idea that information is important to dogs in search, including stop wasting time over there. We know it's not there, or I'm yeah. telling you it's not. Well, one, maybe it's because I saw that I see the target. I know it's not there. I have no problem giving negative feedback to dogs. Yes, same. Yep. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, if it helps. I mean, because, you know, the, what we know in neuroscience is that learning is not just an acquisition process it's also a pruning process if you look at neural networks the, the way they learn or the way they, they they work is they will create more connections or less and a network will be more efficient if it prunes away prunes out quicker the irrelevant connections right instead of having them linger there kind of doing nothing ignoring as people say I think in many cases, there's absolutely nothing wrong in saying no, for instance. I, 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 there's been so many different conversations about the no. It doesn't have to be no. But one way to say, drop this, move on, try something else, right? Whatever it is. So I personally have no problem doing this unless, obviously, the dog that is the recipient of this is not taking it well, all right? And that's like everything in training. If you do anything that frustrates, stresses your dog, stop. Something is not right or you're doing it wrong. Just don't do that, obviously. Where was I going with this? Oh, man. Well, you're bringing up this part, which is, I would say, waiting a dog out. So a lot of people say, oh, oh. when you're wrong, wait them out. And I'm like, yeah. sometimes this looks like a duration exercise to a dog too, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, look, I'd rather be honest with the dog right away. Um, tell them that that, that, didn't, that didn't work out. Um, let's move on, right? I mean, and we see this even in the lab here when they, they do 
long sessions, which are not that long, actually, it's 20 trials, um, on, say, a two-way FC. So that's a choice uh, typically between uh, the S plus and the S minus. So the target is there in a blank or or distractor. Uh, if if they choose the wrong one, uh, we'll say, thank you. That means, okay, let's move on to the next trial. So they run out of the room, wait for the door to close because that's what happened, and then wait for the signal from the 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 third person in a room to, uh, or second person in a room to, to say, okay, ready for the next trial, right? Because they, they will mm-hmm. you know, change the order, put a new sample or whatever. And then you see the dog, right? So they're actually very happy to know. Let's not waste time here. Like, you know, let's, okay, I got that wrong. Okay, now I get it. They get out of the room, they wait, they come back in. And then usually they give a much better sniff, kind of like, oh, wait, I don't want to miss this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, right, this is the right one, right? And, I've never seen any of our dogs getting pissed off if we did that. In fact, I can tell you the opposite. Mm-hmm. Dogs that barked at us and once tried to bite were dogs where we were not giving that feedback. They were like, what? What's going on? What's going on? This worked earlier. You gave me something. Now you're not doing anything. What is this? What is this? Right? Yep. And that may be honestly a border collie thing, but what I've noticed, the border collies, they just want to know, did I get it right? Mm-hmm. Did I get it wrong? I don't care. Just tell me. So I know. Oh, wrong? Fine. Let's get to that next trial as soon as possible. So here I disagree fundamentally with a lot of people that say never say no to a dog or never. Mm-hmm. I think obviously it depends if if it's a if it's a condition punisher, if you if it's a if it's a punisher, if you screamed no at the dog in the past, sure. Here, I think we're having more discussion about the connotation of it, right? Mm-hmm. This is why we don't actually use that word because we don't know what the owners of the dogs we work with actually how they use no at home. So we say thank you, right? Yeah. Just wait, 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 move on. Yep. Um, it, it's kind of a keep going signal in a sense. Yeah, or as I think it's Mike also, used the word no, a no reward marker. Try again. Yeah, or exactly. You won't have the reward right now, but again, that just means like, you know, the next one you may get it, right? Uh, remember, anticipation is what works in learning, right? That's what, what gets the dopamine flowing. And, and uh, yeah, um, there's something you said about play. I want to get to that. Sure. Uh, it, play as a reinforcer is an interesting one because it takes time. It's a bit disruptive. And you know, often people will use it probably the way you do, which is you, you engage in a very short uh, play bout, right? Mm-hmm. So often it will be, for instance, the Kong, throw the Kong once, come back, that's it, go back to work, right? Yeah, a lot of times. I time, can imagine. I, I don't do that anymore, but I know what you're talking about. Yes, correct. Yep. So here's what's interesting about this. And and um, I, I, I guess that's a bit the neuroscience of it. And I've, and I've heard other people making comments about this in the past, and they're right about this. You have to be a little bit careful with play because what's interesting about that system of anticipation I'm talking about, um, and this is why I like the Ken Berridge theory so much, is that this is actually what Panksep used to call the seeking system, or not used to, calls the seeking system. In the Berridge system, it's called the wanting system, right? Anticipation is wanting. Mm-hmm. The other system that you find in Berridge and you do not find in the, in the Panksep is the, the one that counteracts this, which is um, the liking system. 
So wanting and liking actually have this kind of seesaw relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. Wanting is dopamine. Liking is endorphins, right? So click, I could get something. That's wanting, right? Dopamine, mm-hmm. like, what, what's next, right? You deliver the, the, the kibble. Yep. Now that's liking. This is the consummatory phase. It's like, mm, oh, this mm-hmm. is good. Endorphins start to be produced. The thing that's interesting here, the neuroscience of this will tell you that actually, uh, interestingly, uh, and even more so with play, the reinforcer gets you into liking in endorphin. Endorphin actually are amnestic. They make you forget the anti-learning in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. You don't learn when you are being reinforced. You learn when you anticipate it. So if you prolong especially that play bout, you're putting the dog into this, okay, this is a new thing now. It's more about the endorphins. It's fun. No doubt about it. Endorphins are fun. We love it as humans, right? Food, sex, you know, all that kind mm-hmm. of Sure, absolutely. Except that you're in a wrong mode. And this is why with some dogs, it's really hard to bring them back unless you train that kind of short bout of reinforcement. And then you say, okay, got it. Now we have to go back into the quote, quote, dopamine mode. Oh, I didn't get the... Uh-huh. Oh, well, anyway, I guess it doesn't always work. So, yeah, so it, it's, I think it's, um, you know, I, I use play, but usually it's at the end of a session yes. when we're ready for a break, when in fact we may even sit down for lunch in the field. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I know this will break the flow very much of what we're doing. Um, it's good. I have nothing against play. But using it as a reinforcer the same way you use kibble, for instance, I, I, I don't know. I, and, and, I see exactly yeah. what you're talking about because you know, I have right now 25, you know, I'm almost in my 30th year of doing this. So I'd say it's only been the past few years where I've adopted a new mindset about reward and engagement and things like that. And everything you're saying, I have gone through when I used one for one. You find it, you get the toy. You find it, you get the toy. It absolutely creates a level of disruption. And again, the higher the motivated the dog, the more the disruption that happens, especially when the handler and the dog don't have a good relationship about releasing the item. So then it turns it that now you start going into a whole bunch of other areas that aren't even related to detection anymore. So I adopted, and as I got, better understanding hanging around and learning from individuals such as yourself and the other doctors that were out there that were like, hey, we can still do, we can communicate a lot, reinforce a lot, but we don't have to give them that item every single time. And it's actually better when you give it for certain specific things. And it wasn't until there was a good conversation we were having with Bob Bailey when we were talking about jackpot and things like that. And he said, you know, so many trainers have jackpot wrong. You know, jackpot isn't just giving a handful of treats, you know, to you that you're going, oh, I gave him a bunch of things. He goes, that's a waste of resources. He goes, you know, the jackpot is for something that happened unexpectedly and that was a significant leap in performance. And then the jackpot itself is the longer duration of the reinforcing item. So whether it be the play or the food delivery or whatever it was, it was that that was the truly the jackpot, not you giving them their favorite toy in that moment, or you gave them the 10 pieces of food versus one piece of food that you've been giving previously. 
And that opened my mind. And then I said, okay. And then, of course, dealing with really, really high drive dogs, the Malinois and so forth, that I've had to start trying to educate handlers of these types of dogs that, hey, look, you don't have to give them that favorite toy every single time because look what you're going through in between each repetition. There's all these other things that are happening in order to get it back to start over again. There, a lot of the arguments about that were based on, well, if I don't give it to them, they go right back to the source item or they, they get very frustrated. I said, Bill, that's because you failed to communicate that earlier on in training. And where you're trying to do this right now isn't the spot where you should be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it in the field or you shouldn't be doing it in a scenario-based training exercise. You should be doing it back in a fundamental-based exercise. So back to the brick walls or the boxes. This is where you can do it because you can get more repetitions and they do get to find something. And then you can start, like you said, teaching this concept in a way that's easier for them to understand versus in this other condition where there's too many things you can't control anymore. And so it's such as being off leash and these things that they're, how they'd be working their dogs. This still also brings me up to a question is what do you say uh, to the dogs where, when you talked about giving feedback, where you say, uh, uh, try again and, you know, condition reinforcer when you're correct, there's a going to be a segment. A lot of people ask, well, my dog is just going to wait for me to confirm for them one way or the other. And mm-hmm. how do you respond to those that would bring that argument forth of, well, if I tell them they're incorrect and I also tell them they're correct, what's going to stop the dog from just waiting for, especially a sign tracker, that's going to wait for me just to confirm for them versus them putting the work in to make a decision? I'm not sure I get the question. Sorry. So, so for example, what they would say is the dog goes up and sniffs the thing and then is then mm-hmm. creates a pause of time waiting for you to go, uh-uh, or yes, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do you combat that? I know how I would combat it is I, I would have my conditions and let the dog make a decision before. But what their fear is, is that, you, that if you give too much information, the dog will just, instead of responding independently, goes up into the thing and is waiting for you to say yay or nay. Is this correct? How do you? Oh, convert? yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So th- this would be a dog, actually, that, uh, you know, in signal detection theory parlance would would risk the false alarms. Yes. Right. Um, and uh, so that's interesting because that's exactly why we use actually signal detection theory is because it allows you to identify dogs that are either very liberal or conservative in their decisions, right? Mm. So a liberal dog is more likely to go with the false alarms. I'll risk that. If when I don't know, I'll I'll give a false alarm and see mm-hmm. what happens. Um, conservative dogs are are more about um, uh, basically do misses. It's like they they're more restrained. So if I don't know, I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So the problem is in either cases it's an error, right? It's uh, what we call in statistics in the first case, uh, false alarms is type one error. The other one is type two errors. So it, they're basic errors and should not obviously be reinforced for this. But that's where it gets interesting because I think every dog has a tendency to have a bias. I mean, there's some what we call ideal observers, uh, like IV, my dog IV, in almost everything we test her on. Uh, there's a, a, a number attached to this that we call the criterion or the beta, depending which uh, which parameter you use here. And she writes smack in the middle, 
So she doesn't have a bias. In other words, a very tiny, tiny bias. I think she's slightly liberal, uh, but I mean, we're talking insignificant. Mm-hmm. So we measure this with our dogs because we've had dogs that were quite liberal and quite conservative. And here's what's interesting about this. It depends what you do in detection work. Like the, my, the favorite example with the students is this, is if you're doing demining, okay? Believe me, you don't want, you, you want a liberal dog. You mm-hmm. want a, a dog that when not sure will say, I think there's something here. <laughs> Yeah, because the the dog that go with misses, well, it's going to happen once, and you and the dog blow blow together, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that the, the the reasonable assumption is is every dog will tend to have a bias, and the question now is how are you fixing it? So I think part of your question is, yeah, those dogs are super liberal. Like I'm going to always indicate and hope that you know I'm I'm right. You basically have to make it. So it's not a 50-50 perspective, right? Because, I mean, this is where, you know, sometimes the two AFC, the two choices, is this mm-hmm. is it this one or that one, mm-hmm. doesn't work with some dogs because they'll go like, it's a coin toss. I yeah. just have to guess. And half of the time I'll have the reinforcer. You know what? That's good enough for me. We discovered here that it doesn't take much to break this put three choices. Yes. And then suddenly that effect goes away, right? Um, so, but in detection tasks, or if you, if you must, for some reason, do a two AFC or two choice kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's going to be playing with, uh, and you have to do this before the field, before you have your own unknown here. Um, uh, you, you'll have to play with the strength of the reinforcer. Look, uh, in other words, th- there is a cost to, do some fibbing with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that means uh, I typically had a delay to this. It's like, no, no, you know what? That wasn't it. Mm-hmm. So let's make this not that pleasant for you. Next time, take the time to sniff and then you'll have the reward right away. And then you, we can move through this a little bit more. Right. So it's, it's establishing that this contrast essentially in there's a cost to be lazy in a sense, because that's kind of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, but, but then increase the, the, the big party, right. When they get it right, basically. Am I answering your question? Is that that's, what you yeah, were yeah, That's correct. And yeah. okay. what you mentioned is some of the things I've stumbled on just by myself as I've experimented or tried things out or, or looked at, you know, a different perspective of doing things. And it, again, being around people much smarter than me gave me ideas of, well, maybe instead of, like you said, the two-choice aspect go into, when I would see other practitioners, sorry, researchers always using three choices. And I was like, why is that? And they're like, well, having the 33% rule helps a dog figure things out better than just yes or no. But yes or no can be helpful when they're highly paying attention to this one thing. The correct answer is right here. I can signify very quickly, this is going to get you reinforcement, this does it. And as soon as I have that, we go right to three, so that way there's a zero, there's a positive, there's a negative, and it's like, to your point, then they go, okay, this is what I have to do. I'm going to sift each one of these and figure out which one it is. And that's kind of how I, one of the ways I answer that question I said before is when someone says, well, they're just going to wait for your information. I'm going to do this process as 
little as possible, as much as necessary. I'm going to give input as I need to, but then there's sometimes, like you said, hey, make a choice. I'm going to give a pause. You're going to have to make a choice before I give you any information, not let you wait for me to confirm one way or the other. And exactly like you said, the liberal or conservative example, I used to, the, the analogy I gave was I have dogs that were what I called super specific dogs and the super generalizer dogs, the dogs that were like, I'm the generalizer ones were me were like, I'm just gonna give it a shot, see what happens. And then I had mm-hmm. the ones that were specific that were like, not even my training aid, so I'm not going to respond to it, even though the chemical yeah. was the same. So what you're describing is what we we call the conservative and liberal bias. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And it's a question of personality. Sometimes, actually, interestingly, you may find exceptions depending on the scent. So some dogs are usually liberal. Some suddenly becomes conservative it's hard to know why mm-hmm. um i've noticed this especially if you go from a synthetic odor to a natural one so for some reason when it's a biologically meaningful odor then then they, they change their uh, decision bias for some reason mm-hmm. um but you know what's interesting about um uh, th- these kinds of hesitations when you start having problems like this i will often also uh, if it's in a session with say 10 trials or 20 trials um I'll I'll interrupt the trial. Look, yep. you're you're not playing the game the way I want you to do it. Let's walk out of the room, close mm-hmm. the door, look at each other in the eyes for a minute. Okay, let's reset. It's a reboot, right? Okay, let's try this again, right? And yeah, then we yeah. go back in. I, I, yeah. It's big that you you have to create. What is your reset criteria, and then how do you do it? You know, a lot of people don't go into it considering why or when they should do a reset, and I think that sometimes where additional errors occur because they keep trying versus going, you know what, let's stop, put the dog away for a little bit, yep. reset. Yep. Makes well, and, and you're right. There's different types of reset. Sometimes this little pause that, that we do that may be, you know, five seconds, 10 seconds may become a minute, but then sometimes there's another um, door which gets into the main room right here in the lab. And, and sometimes it's just, okay, let's walk around a little bit, you know, say hi to this one. Yeah, let's go back now. And sometimes even that doesn't work. Let's go for a pee walk. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, some dogs just need that. Okay. I, this is not working for me. I'm not getting where this is going. I'm getting lazy. You're right about that. And they just need the, the get out of that room, take a deep breath, then come back with a fresh, uh, a fresh mind again. And I mean, some people see that as being punishing. I don't think it is. I think it's just like, you're in a rut right now. You're not, you're not on the right track. It's not working out. You're getting frustrated. So, you know, let's, let's do something else. And that's, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, you know, it, one of the difficulties with lineups and carousels and all that is to develop the thoroughness of the dog in examining and sniffing all of the stations, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you read a good, um, um, the, uh, what's that group from, uh, the Netherlands, uh, why am I blocking on your, uh, uh, Schoon, uh, yeah, that's right. Schoon, oh, yeah, yeah. A day shown. Yep. yep. Uh, oh, shown. Sorry. Yes. I've, I've heard all kinds of ways of pronouncing her name. Um, wh- when you look at what they did, I mean, they're, they're very clear that you have to make sure to train your dog to examine all of the stations. Uh, and one way to do this actually is to, uh, to trick them a little bit by sometimes having a, a blank lineup. So in other words, there are lineups where there will be a no response and they have to be able to deal with that. Right. And sometimes you have a lineup with two, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, something in position two, 
And then, oh, it's not over. Look at that. There's uh, another target on position six, right? Um, but I have to say that that is problematic in experiments for us. And this is why I like the pure detection task. By this, I mean a yes-no task where it is only one vial with or without an order or with the target and the distractor. And they have to commit a yes answer. So it's a nose hold for us five, uh-huh. five seconds over it. Or the clear no, which is the, uh, you know, sitting back. It's harder to train, takes longer. Some dogs have, they just don't like the two answer thingy. And especially if they were trained on a lineup before, where there's uh-huh. always, it's always the nose hold in our case that would have been an indication. Uh, but you know what? It's really worth it because it's the only way you can have a real, including mathematical indication of that bias I was talking about, are they liberal or conservative? Um, the math of it is very, very simple, um, but it's because then you compute in a matrix the hits, true positives, um, the, the correct rejections, true negatives, and then those false alarms I was telling you about and the misses that are those errors. Mm-hmm. And it's in the proportions of these that you figure out if they're liberal or if they, um, uh, if they are conservative. And it's tremendously useful. And it's interesting, the number of people that do this work, and I mean, clearly you thought about it and you have terms for it, but a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. If I ask them, is your dog a, a, a liberal decision maker or a conservative one, they have no idea. Yeah. Then I have to say, well, if they don't know, what do they do? Are they just, you know, continuing or, or, or more likely to indicate? Mm-hmm. I don't it, know. It, yeah. No, so you're bringing up something that I learned myself uh, over the past few years was the importance of introducing zero as an option earlier on in training. We used to wait until we were operational before we even looked at or introducing that there would be nothing here. And I learned that was very problematic because the dog, I had built I had built such a history in the dog that they had to find something. And when, like you said, you've got a dog who's going to go, I, I can't find the target here. You're not leaving. I'll just pick this because there's nothing yep. else here that's bringing value. And, and then, yeah, and then the problem, you create a dog that becomes very liberal because they're, they're, they will create those false arms all the time because they're expected. So Perfect. here we're back to this idea. You remember the Capaldi, the sequential theory, right? The Capaldi theory. What you set up during training, right? They will expect something similar in the real world when you yeah. go to the field, for instance. The yeah. problem with that is they rarely match. Mm-hmm. Unless, and this is where it's so damn important to actually use, in my opinion, partial reinforcement, schedules or reinforcement because that's what the real world is going to be like because again you have those situations when they may indicate something in the field like in my case with the the wood turtles the problem is i don't know i don't know i don't know what we were discussing earlier well it's not a problem in a way if your dog is used to not be reinforced every time they get the right answer it's that it's that it's that basic, mm-hmm. and this translates into uh, alert dog and assistant dogs as well. The real world is this: we know this because we've seen it. Most people, dog owners that have those assistance dogs, the alert dogs, when the dogs alert, either because it's because of a glycemic event or because of a panic attack, they're they're not in the right mind frame to reinforce the dog. 
So they won't. And after a while, the dog is like, excuse me. Like I indicated here clearly that you were going to have a panic attack. And what am I getting for this? Nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. But the real world is like that. The real world is not always consistently reinforcing you. And if you're not used to that, Skinner said it himself because that was his PhD thesis. Then you get extinction. Yeah. And then you'd get a dog that's not responding anymore. Problem is, for this kind of work, you may never know. You may not realize until it's too late that this dog is not signaling. So, you know, again, there's a lot of pushback on the partial reinforcement stuff. But, you know, I always tell my students, if it's done well, if you look at those lab books we have, we used to use in the 70s and 80s to train our rats in, in our labs, if you do it well, there won't be any frustration. Yeah. I mean, this is a myth that partial reinforcement or schedules of reinforcement always lead to frustration. It's not. If you do it well, it's not going to. And, and, and that is something the, exactly Michael has said because he talks about it in the obedience world. I can't reinforce every single position that we do when we are out there doing the thing. We have to do lots of things, but I can communicate certain aspects, keep going. I like, you know, this is going to, we're going to get there. But I don't need to reinforce every single specific thing that happened because of what you're exactly describing right now. Yeah. And 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 the thing, you know, the, the main mistake, look, I see it because I, I teach the theory in class. And then I get those students as honor students or or beyond doing the work in my lab. And I can tell you without I, I mean, I don't even have to think about it. I know it's gonna happen. If I say, okay, now it's time to put this dog on the schedule, they will do it wrong. The, the number one mistake is people go way too fast. Um, and by the way, if you put the clicker on the schedule, right, not pairing the CSUS, the, the click tree, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you go too fast, the dog will say, what's this? Every time I use the click, heard a click before I would get the, the and now it's what, 50% of the time? Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Now, obviously, you're going to, to see frustration if you do this. So if you look in the old lab books, uh, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, what they say is, okay, uh, you start, let's say, your, your variable ratio. Um, okay, at first, you know, 100% reinforcement. Let's use percentages easier. You go 98%, 95% of the time you reinforce, 90, 85, 75, you can go, you know, and remember the work by by uh, uh, all these, um, uh, Tony Wright is one of them, but uh, Einstein and others. I mean, pigeons will pick 3,000 times, <laughs> okay, yep. before they get a reinforcer, a primary reinforcer. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable if you give them the time to adjust to it, how then something else is starting to motivate them. It's Especially if you use a condition reinforcer, because let's not forget that in every textbook that you will see on animal learning theory, I have quite a few, in fact, I have 60 or so, right? In all of these textbooks, the way they actually define clicker training is that you do click, treat, click, treat, click, treat, click, treat, click, treat. Now they know that the click predicts a treat Mm -hmm. at least some of the time. And technically, the theory says now the clicker by itself is reinforcing. That's what a condition reinforcer actually means. Yes. Right? But somehow it's been totally forgotten 
and you know, because you know the the story, it's Bujelski, right, that documented this first. It is it, it's this mistake that we all made when we work with rats or pigeons. For me, it was pigeons here at Dalhousie, where uh, you know you you put the the, the pigeon in the Skinner box. And uh, you you get a computer run uh, auto shaping basically. You uh, and then you go for a coffee. When you come back, the pigeon uh, actually is 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 trained or shaped at least. Except that sometimes you forget. Whoops. Uh, to uh, and I mean whoops because it's it's a genuine mistake. You forget to uh, put the pigeon feed in the magazine uh, in the the container that that feeds the magazine. And uh, so that was actually found accidentally. And it's this idea that uh, one guy came in a lab one day and the pigeon was pecking. You could hear that. Okay. And looks in the, the magazine container and it's empty. And then realized, oh, no. I went for my coffee 30 minutes ago and I forgot to fill it. But wait a minute. Why is it still pecking? And the idea is that when a magazine comes down, it does a click sound. That's where it's coming from. And because there was probably a a few kibbles left in the magazine container initially, it understood the pairing. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it stopped producing it. But you know what? The click is now intrinsically, uh, you know, uh, reinforcing. So the pigeon was continuing doing it right because... If you heard the click, which mm-hmm. is a confirmation, basically, that I'm giving the right answer. <laughs> I mean, that's where the, that's the story of it. And that's the famous Bujelski paper in the, in the 30s, 1938, actually. This has been a long time since we've known this. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, in the dog world, it became this thing that every click must be followed by, by the, the food. Otherwise, you know, your dog will stop responding or will get frustrated. Again, it depends how it's done. It can get frustrated if you're not doing a, a smooth transition to this. But and, and by the way, I'm not. That's saying... That's where I messed up with Michael's quote. Michael wasn't saying that it, he would say he his thing was when you don't do it correctly, when you don't pare it down, you know, like like you mentioned slowly. If people just went cold turkey and stopped reinforcing it, oh, then absolutely, then that that's where I screwed up in an explanation earlier. But yes, I'm, so I'm glad you you took a little bit more time to explain exactly that. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, you know, schedules of reinforcement, uh, so with the primary reinforcer or between the CS and UN. Yeah, it, it, if, if you go, I, look, there was a study that looked into this a few years ago, and uh, they were reporting that there was actually no difference if you're doing a perfect clicker uh, to food pairing or not, except that in the uh, uh, unpaired uh, condition, um the dog showed signs of uh, of stress. Mm-hmm. So I went to read the papers like, really? And then I went, oh, geez. What they did is the dogs were used to continuous pairing and then suddenly they dropped it just like that, boom, to 60%. Like, yeah, obviously you're going to have dogs saying, what is going on here, man? Like, you know, it, so again, the schedules of reinforcement, partial reinforcement, intimate reinforcement, never said go cold turkey it has to be very slow progressive you need some time and if you do it well there will be no frustration no stress and it's hard 
except that it's not because all you need to do is pay attention to your dog and how they're reacting. Sometimes you'll realize you're going a little too fast. Well, step back a little bit, re-increase the rate of, of primary reinforcement, and uh, then they readjust and then you start you know, reducing it a little bit and then you'll be fine. But again, it's based on this idea that we often forget, right? That the real world is not consistent. Okay. The real world, and, and especially this idea that uh, if we go back to the operational aspect of things, right? These moments where you hesitate, they become important because you used to always follow the right response with the reinforcer. But what if during training, that was not necessarily the case? Well, then it won't affect your dog one bit. Because it's not expecting to always be reinforced when the right answer is given. Yep. It knows that it's on a, a VR and a VI ten, mm-hmm. and every ten or so it will be reinforced. All is good, and it also I think clearly helps dogs that get overly aroused or motivated when they understand it can happen in, intermittently versus the expectation of every time. And if they've done every time for so long, then even when you start bringing it down, those dogs that are highly aroused and motivated start exhibiting undesired behaviors. And that's where I think a lot of trainers panic and go back to 100% to satiate that. And that's actually doing the wrong thing. They're actually strengthening the dog's persistence that I must get it versus showing them that you'll get it, but don't worry. It well, And again, there's individual differences, right? I sure. mean, uh, you have dogs also that will develop superstitious behaviors. They'll start imagining stuff that's not there. Actually, you know, interestingly, Border Collies have a tendency to do this, right? I think it's their OCD-like tendencies that's like, oh, wait a minute. There's no way it's that simple. It must be something else. Well, last time I did this, I turned my head that side. So now that's part of the response, right? I mean, they, they'll make up shit like this. Yes. But again, um, uh, you know, it, it's... I mean, I'm not saying it's not a challenge, but in every training situation, pay attention to your dog. If you get this this kind of confusion, if you get that 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 stress or frustration, you are doing something wrong, mm-hmm. not the dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, stop, step back, think. What what is going wrong here? What am I not reading? What what what? How is the dog interpreting this situation as well? You know, today in class, actually, I was talking about affordances and uh, some of the Gibsonian theory. I'm very close to that uh, model of thinking, probably because I was um, I was training ethology, but it just makes sense to me. And uh, I'll t- just tell you that story. It's a, it's a side story, but it's this interesting idea that we have dogs that come to the lab here and sometimes right away, but often with time get bored. You know, these little stainless steel containers that have those those glass jars it's mm-hmm. boring right it's just it's sterile it's yeah. it's boring stuff right and one dog that we had i call it the baloo effect because of that dog was called baloo and baloo was so good but then start losing motivation completely he just didn't like the lab setup except that we would go outside for a little pee break and he would be sniffing everything that he could and thinking it's not it's not that this dog doesn't like sniffing he doesn't like sniffing in the sterile lab lab conditions so what we thought of doing basically is somewhat bringing the lab uh, or sorry the field in the lab although the ethics committee didn't let us do that exactly i was literally going to uh, uh bring wheelbarrow of, of earth from outside to do it but anyway what we ended up doing it is that uh, doing is a 
plastic container. And the substrate we used, we still have it here, uh, is those uh, wood um, wood chips yeah. or wood stoves, okay. right? Mm -hmm. And um, the container was about maybe this deep. And we would put the stainless steel jars with the odors buried in there. Mm -hmm. right? Baloo immediately went, <laughs> now we're talking, man. <laughs> And he made uh, every time an absolute mess, you know, just like digging in there and rooting, getting his nose into it. And his performance went up like crazy, like 300%. Wow. Ironically, if you think about it, this is a buried sample. With time, with accumulated contamination, because we didn't change the substrate every trial, not even every session for that matter. And yet... He was significantly more performant in this situation. And this brings this idea that, you know, olfaction for a dog is not happening in a vacuum, right? It's in a context that makes sense to their brain. And the closer it is to basic foraging behaviors, like the whole motor thing, you know, the head getting involved, the nose getting in, into it, the paws crunching and digging and everything the more they are going to work well, yeah. right? It turns them on to do this. Yeah. But you cute little jars down those cute little stands. And we, you know, for most dogs, that's just like, huh, whatever. What's, so they'll do it. Such a good example. It's so, I've seen that so many times and you're, and I, and I appreciate it more when I switch to spaniels because they got really bored with using wheels and, and the sterile wall or the boxes. They wanted to search things. And yeah. just your example of making a switch like that, putting the containers within a container with the wood chips or whatever, that would make it so much more interesting to them to solve, to do the same game I was doing before, but just creating an environment that was more stimulating, which then really matches the real world later on anyway. Yeah. And despite the fact that you're you're actually adding noise, right? Adding interference. The, the paradoxical part of this is that it's not reducing their performance. It's if anything, it's increasing it. So it works so well for us that we start doing this actually as a test as well to assess the dogs and their searching styles. Um, we we have a literally in one of the rooms here. We have a, a hole in the in the in the floor, not not terribly deep. Mm -hmm. It's about a meter and a half by a meter and a half that we fill with um, whatever the ethics committee that year will will allow us to do. Sometimes it's shredded paper, sometimes it's it's uh, these little wood chips I was talking about. But yeah, some of our dogs do a lot better in those situations than um, uh, than than other. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's beautiful to see them, and it tends to be a little bit biased towards the hunting breeds. Sure, that right? makes total sense. Uh, it makes total sense, and you're right about the, the spaniels. By the way, my my Tash right now is a uh, uh, she cracks me up. She's technically she's a sprawly. Okay, right? so she's her father was full uh, Cocker Spaniel, and uh, not Cocker, sorry, Springer Springer mm -hmm. Spaniel. Her mother was half cocker and half border collie. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting dog. It's intense. It's a heck of a combo yeah. right there. Yeah, very intense, very affectionate, like oh, yeah. most spaniels. Uh, yeah. But man, so different from my red golden. My red golden is, you know, okay. I go in the field. 
good trailing dog. I think it's in that direction, point A to point B. And I don't know what it is with spaniels. I don't know if that's your experience, but I mean, they will inspect every square inch of the field, even if they know it's not relevant. Yeah, they're it's crazy. And you know what's amazing? That's one of the best demons I've had so far. They complete each other perfectly. Yeah, I mean, she'll pick up on stuff that Ivy doesn't get. Although Ivy will get that five minutes before she does. Sure. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but it's it's a great great team. It's so uh, true. It, yeah. And that's the thing we don't discuss enough, by the way. I think there's not enough research on this, these different uh, trailing and tracking styles and breeds. You know, it, it's funny because we we created, uh, we domesticated an animal. We, we created, uh, I think it's well over 50% of breeds overall, if you look at the FCI data that, that are actually hunt, uh, hunting breeds, to address very specialized form of hunting and scent a lot of the time and yet we don't seem to even pay attention to what we've been doing the last 8,000 15,000 years in selecting those very specific behaviors and and they do matter depending on the work you do um yeah why not take advantage of uh, i mean um Otter hounds uh, apparently are much better than other breeds in uh, scenting for stuff that's underwater, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, hey, I mean, that's great if you know this. If you're doing cadaver dog uh, work and you know that, uh, at least in some situation, that uh, cadaver could be in, in the water, mm-hmm. I mean, go get the otter hound. You're bringing um, up with, doc- with uh, not doctor, but uh, Craig Koshik. He's another fellow Canadian. He's. Um, he does. He writes for Sporting Dog, one of the Sporting Dog magazines. He's written numerous books, and he goes into specific breeds and the whole history behind them. Uh, if you ever get a chance to look up his stuff, you definitely should. Mm. He's really, really good at explaining what you just said. He goes, we don't take advantage, as we should, certain qualities that we bred for. You know, we get yeah. so wrapped up on an appearance, and we totally miss out on a capability that was bred for, not what it looked like. But, you know... Yeah. Yeah. popularity aspect based on, or focused on looks and then missed out on well it should be this or or certain like you said search and rescue programs he's like why do they pick german shepherds and malinois well that's because that's what police used and they wanted to be official so to be official it meant you had to have a malinois or a german shepherd versus going with well the type of work i'm doing this breed really does well for bark indications they bark to tell you they found something and they're really good at hunting. So why wouldn't a search and rescue group pick this breed versus, and it's such a, that podcast, I did two podcasts with him uh, because of, you couldn't get enough in one to cover some of the information that somebody like him had studied. So it's, it's funny that you bring up the exact same kind of concept there. Yeah. I, I remember being in New York, actually in New York City, and this guy uh, was there with um police officer he was there with his uh, red golden actually like mine so i was kind of oh, that's interesting so uh he wasn't too busy and i asked permission to talk let me tell you yeah, sure let's have a chat and um I said why that breed and he said well let me put it this way i'll never go back to the millionaires and, and the german shepherds and he didn't want to say more than that. <laughs> he said, this is what works for me and the kind of work we do here. He said, I don't know why we wasted so much time insisting on having these, uh, you know, sexy breeds that seem to, you know, to, to, to fill what is expected in the job. I don't need an aggressive dog to do this, you know. Uh, 
uh, I need a dog that has a good nose. That's it. So, I mean, in context, he was looking for explosives, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, or maybe drugs, but it was more, um, I think, uh, explosives in that context. So, yeah, I think we uh, we got stuck with this idea. I mean, look, I mean, sometimes it's good to have a generalist, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I think, interestingly, German Shepherds and Malinois tend to be quite generalist in terms of the, the, their scenting abilities, etc. Uh, border Collies as well. But sometimes you want a specialist. Mm-hmm. Right? You want a guy that's really good in those conditions or has this very obsessive, compulsive uh, search pattern versus the one that's more into trailing, which is more, right? The, the air scenting is very different. It, it requires, it's not all breeds or all individuals that will uh, learn all of these techniques, right? Yeah. And again, by design, by design, we have created breeds that are much better at tracking than trailing and vice versa right so absolutely yeah it's puzzling to me that we we don't explore that more but i mean the, the practical aspect of it obviously it's it's annoying because then how many dogs do you need to do the job that you do yeah, exactly so i'll uh, take us to i'll take us to the uh a last question i have here and this is happens a lot yep. and, and people have always we've had numerous different hypotheses to why so the question is when you have a search area set up, you have the first dog run, this dog, for whatever the reason, picks some object that has no target odor whatsoever. It The dog just says, hey, I'm alerting to this. After that dog runs, subsequent dogs pick the same thing. Now, I've heard various people say, oh, the subsequent dogs picked up on the pheromones or the the things that the dogs emitted from their bodies when they were excited because of the anticipation, as you said earlier, to this. Is, do you have any more scientific information on this? Why does this occur? And have you, obviously, I'm assuming you've seen the same thing. Yeah. Well, I think there's two two obvious two obvious possibilities. One is that there's indeed something there. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, it's they're right about this. It may not be the intended target, but that's that's you know may not be important for them. So indeed, if it's a pheromone of another species, for instance, I know that's not what you were talking about, but uh, that's difficult for a dog, any dog, mm-hmm. to actually ignore, right? Or yep. blood, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Even if it was put there, like um, uh, you know, like three months earlier. I mean. The, the, the other thing is, yes, um, there's no doubt that the they can decode most likely the search pattern of the previous dog. Let, let's say this. It's not unlike humans, right? The faster you go through a certain surface, the least of these skin flakes, etc., you will actually leave behind. If you slow down, there's a lot more. Mm-hmm. It's the same for dogs. So the longer they stay in a specific location, the, the 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 odor gradient is much stronger there so obviously the other dog is going to slow down that what was that about why did he stop here or slow down here right mm-hmm. so i think that's the main reason um or again there is indeed something that that, that was deemed interesting for the yeah. dog at that location but that's the fascinating part of working with two dogs right is uh when they agree with each other right that that convergence of agreement mm-hmm. And equally, when they don't, I mean, sometimes it's go like, well, wait a minute, why you? And really, why? Okay, I guess there's some disagreement here. And sometimes that can be informative too. I mean, I love working with two dogs. To be honest with you, I mean, sometimes it's chaotic, 
um, I will make sure I have at least another handler with me. Um, but if it's a pair of dogs that work well together, I, I, I love it. Yeah. Um, but I agree. Sometimes it can get very, very confusing and very, uh, difficult to manage. Oh, for sure. The, so I'll leave our viewers and listeners with this to kind of summarize what we've gone through today is, you know, first we, we both very much agree that communication condition reinforcers are very important for the communication and clarity of detection. Uh, another thing I would say is the importance of reward types, you know, you don't need to always use the favorite one every single time. We also, it's not a bad thing to when the dog hears the condition reinforcer and it doesn't receive the reward afterwards. It's not devastating to the dog. The dogs can survive. In fact, if you do it properly, it, it actually strengthens behaviors. And then the also the importance of introducing nothing. There's no there's no target order present. And even in the dog acknowledging nothing is here this is a reinforcing thing as well the right answer of no answer deserves reinforcement so they understand it's not just about i have to find the thing and the only way i get rewarded is if i find the thing if i correctly say there's nothing here this is also reinforcing so yep, absolutely yeah I, I, so I, so in, in other words yeah in other words you're you're training the s plus but you're also training the s minus right let's not forget this i mean it, it's uh um yeah, if there's nothing, there's nothing, and that's that's the right answer. There's nothing. Yeah, you said there's nothing. So, and I don't know why that's forgotten in the often in the um, yeah in the in, in the lineup kind of work. But I mean, I think it's very very important to do this and uh, and lineups with with two options as well, right? Uh, teaching them that sometimes there will be two things on that lineup and that that encourages the more thorough right okay i found one target but maybe there's another one right mm -hmm. so they will continue and complete it which is i think very important otherwise especially for data it makes it very hard for a scientist to be satisfied with a lineup that was not fully explored mm -hmm. uh in fact it messes up all our mathematical models there so yeah. um, but it's more satisfying too right um especially if you see if you see, I think, a lineup the way I, I see it, which is kind of a multiple choice exam, right? Mm -hmm. You have A, B, C, D, E, F, which is the right answer, but it's it's often something that you determine by comparing options. Mm -hmm. C and E are pretty close, but wait a minute, which one is it, right? Uh, I think it's E, right? So, yeah. yeah, no, I love it. And that's, and it's, it's, again, I, I thank you first for sharing all this information with us. Um, I would also be curious, would you be willing to, in the future, we mean you can set it up, but maybe even doing a webinar where you, we can turn this into like a lecture where people can tune in and, and go over some of the things that you're talking about. And if that's the case, I saw you say, yeah, yeah, nod yes, I will get with you about this and we'll plan something in the next couple of months where we can get, we can pick a specific topic from this podcast and we'll make it a webinar and, and allow people to participate and maybe even... Uh, engage. I just did one a few weeks ago with Paul Bunker. Um, I think mm -hmm. you know who he is, and uh, he mm -hmm. even referenced you in his webinar about the conservative and liberal dogs. That was something that came up. So it was the uh, the the first time I heard it. You know, in in some of the things you talked about before. I, I think uh, when you were on with Ivan Belabanov um, was mm -hmm. part of this. So it's. I think 
podcasts are a great starting point and then taking it to a webinar where there's a little bit deeper interaction and some good questions. And it helps clarify some things too. I think when people uh, get a glance over in a podcast without a whole lot more uh, in-depth conversation or visual examples to, to see some things. So, but thank you. And and you know, all of these, all these things are just ideas, right? They are that it's uh, what academic can contribute to this is often a different type of experience. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I trained my first, um, send dog in, 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 what was it? Um, in, in 90, 90, 91, I think 1990, um, because I like doing tracking with humans just for fun, you know, mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, but you know, these are just ideas and, um, we don't have to agree with everything. Right? Uh, and that's why I like those podcasts and those discussions. And, uh, uh, because yeah, I mean, sometimes we, we, like you said, we agreed on a lot of things. We could have disagreed on stuff. It would have been fine too. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, everybody has different experiences. Uh, well, both sides you know, have truth to them. Both sides have truths, you know? what yeah sure i mean and and sometimes it's a question of ideology or philosophy or ethics right uh i mean i think ivan and i probably disagree on on you know uh, anyway there are divergences there but i mean that's fine again i mean exactly we can still talk and you know learn from each other and all that absolutely the most important part is starting off with a conversation Absolutely. And, yeah. and I think it's, uh, you know, in the world we live right now with, with all these polarizations, we're doing the worst thing, which is stopping to talk to each other. It yeah. doesn't matter if we're talking about politics, religion or anything. Uh, it, it's dialogue is better than none. Absolutely. Um, you know, it may be uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. Distressful, um, distressing. Yes. But not talking is, uh, uh, you know, what, what will, uh, drive us to our downfall here. Um, yep. I strongly believe that. So how, do, if someone wanted to reach out, do you, I know you have social media, I know you have Facebook. So what I will do is I will create a little link in the show notes so people can find you on Facebook if they want to follow you and see some of your research. Um, but first and foremost, again, thank you so much for taking your time. We've been planning this for a long time, and then I kept traveling, and then I was like, you know what? I want to save him for my first podcast of 2024. And so I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this with me. No problem. And if people want to connect Facebook, I'm pretty much maxed up there and trying to fade this out a little bit just okay. because of the toxicity of that platform sure, sometimes. I agree. So you'll, you'll find me on uh, Instagram, thread. X, the okay. old Twitter, although I'm not sure I will stay there very long. Uh, what else? Uh, I have other Blue Sky. I'm there as well. Okay. Maybe not as active, but anyway. Oh, and uh, Substack. Okay. So what I'll do is when we get done, you can just message me those the handles for those, and then I'll put that in the show notes so it's easier to find. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in to K9's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.